Just a few weeks ago, we were <clears throat> starting to share with the wider fellowship a building project, and we might need some money for. And the passage that we had was about God being able to do all we can imagine or ask. Today, as we come and welcome our five new communicants, we come to this second part of Ephesians chapter four. And guys, it's a good chapter. And it's a good last half of a chapter for you to take away on this uh, special day for yourselves and read it maybe for the rest of your lives and try to put it into practice. Uh, It's a wonderful uh, challenge to all of us as to where our thinking is. I, um, just over the last number of weeks, have had um, three images from the media that have, I suppose, captured many of our imaginations, some more than others. Um... We're going to try and put these up here, Chris, but uh, look at that there. First one's up, now it's a matter of can I press the right button to get the others up. Three images from the media that we've been taken in by. Jimmy Savile with children and young girls all around him. An incredible, how many images have we seen on our television of this icon of the 60s and on into the 70s and the 80s and just what has come out after his death about what kind of things he was doing. And I think it might have been here in church last Sunday that a few of us were just chatting about it. And the truth is, the truth is, that for Jimmy Savile, growing up in the 60s, that became this great time of liberation, some of which was important, but much of which damaged individuals and cultures and society. This is almost a mark of the futility of the thinking of the 60s where we threw out absolutely every constraint that we had on sexual behavior. Jimmy Savile, coming out of the 60s and the rock music of the 60s, probably actually thought it was all right to do those things that he was doing. The futility of the thinking of our culture. And then, I did that myself. That's very scary. This was an image from this week that really took my attention. I don't know whether, like you, but later on one evening, as Superstorm Sandy's about to hit the northeast coast of America, I'm thinking of people that I know, Lee and... um, Jude Smithy, who worshipped here for six months last year, back home in Philadelphia, they were saying, we're hoping that we'll get through the day, but the electricity's out and the houses all around us. And so I was thinking about them. And then they were saying that it was going to head up towards Toronto. And I was thinking about my family. My uh, aunt lost her electricity for just six hours, but that was all that happened to her. But many of us were thinking, what is going on in that part of America? Now, interestingly, at one stage, at one stage in the evening when Sandy hit, they were saying that there had been no casualties. We now know that there's 80 rising all the time of people who've died as a result of this superstorm. But the news item further down that mentioned when Sandy hit Haiti just seemed to be a minor kind of news item, and already almost 100 people had lost their lives. It seems that in our media that the West is more important. And the lives of people in the 
capitalist West are more important than the developing world. Again, our media telling us something that seems to be futile about our thinking, but that's not my thought on this. What happened on one of the shots that was amazing was they were showing the lights of New York City going out everywhere. There was one tar block that was all lights, and then suddenly, like that, all the lights disappeared from it. And while the lights of that major city are going out all the time, they were at Times Square, and not one light was going out. Hardly anybody was walking the streets, but not one light was going out. Now, I understand that that might not have been intentional. And the heart of our Western commerce wasn't saying, keep those lights on and make sure everybody else's lights out because they're going to beam these photographs or these images all around the world and we want to sell our Kodak or get people to come to Mamma Mia or whatever else. Maybe it was just that nobody took the time to get down there and save some electricity by turning out lights that were lighting up nobody. Maybe. But there was still an image for me that said, at the heart of our culture is advertising, is commerce, is sales. As all the other lights go out, one American friend put up on Facebook when I suggested this, the show must go on. It was an image to me that at the heart of our culture, the futility of our thinking is I shop so I am. One of my favorite writers is James K.A. Smith. He's Jamie Smith to those at Calvin College where he lectures. But he has said, to shop is to seek and to find. We come with a sense of need, and the mal promises something to address that. The narratives of the mal's outreach, the veritable stained glass presentations of the happy life, implant within us a desire to find that version of the kingdom, the good life, which requires acquisition to all the accoutrements in order to secure the ideal and combat our failures. Shopping becomes the futility of our religious thinking. When we feel down, when we feel down, do we come round the corner and ring the bell at number 26 and say, Roberta, can you open the church for a moment because I feel I need some consolation. Let me go in and pray just for a moment or two. Or do we think some retail therapy? I'll buy something with a nice bag and a nice logo on the side, and I'll come back from that feeling a whole lot better than I do now. It's an image at the heart of our culture. We got lucky with this photograph. This is Madonna. And the photograph I saw, she'd removed her trousers by that stage. And I was a bit fearful about that one. But Jonathan's a man with more dignity and sensitivity than me. So he got this particular photograph. And what you might see on her back is Malala. This was at a concert recently. It's above her head as well. This is at a concert recently of Madonna's. And what she was trying to do, bless her heart, was to make a protest against the Pakistan terrorists who took shots and shot the little 14-year-old Malala, let me get it right, um, Yousafzai, who was shot in the head and the neck on the school bus 
because she believed that women should have an education. Now, I back Madonna. (laughs) I back Madonna on defending that girl's right to an education. But the problem I have with the futility of the thinking of Madonna and the pop culture is this. That in the photograph that I came across on Facebook in one of the newspapers across America, Madonna at this moment in time is in the middle of a striptease. And what I saw was even worse than what you're seeing now. And for the Muslim community across the world, this is exactly why girls shouldn't have an education. Because what they see is the ridiculousness of this Western sexual promiscuity that allows women to walk around the way Madonna likes to appear on stage in front of thousands of people. This did not help Malala one little bit or her case one little bit. And if we think that Madonna made some tactical error in that or whatever, an error maybe, but she knew exactly what she was doing and provoking. Three images. The start of our reading today in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul says to this church in Ephesus, and let's remember this church in Ephesus isn't a church that was Jewish and came to the Christian faith. This was a, a bunch of Gentiles who came to the Christian faith. And what Paul says to them right at the outset of this part of the chapter that we've read is this. I tell you this, and I insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. Now, Eugene Peterson, if you're a visitor, we're studying through the book of Ephesians. We're taking as our principal kind of railings to, or reels to get us through that book, Eugene Peterson's Practice Resurrection. Peterson in this one says, if this had been a Jewish church, then Paul wouldn't have had to have said the things that he says here and then the rest of the chapter. Because the Jews knew what the morals were that they needed to live by. They were taught the Ten Commandments from a very early age when they went out from synagogue to wherever they went out to in that symbolic way that we've just done. They were taught what they were expected to do to live by the moral and ethical ways of the Lord their God, the one God that they they believed in and worshipped. But what Eugene's saying is that Paul here is realizing that the people in Ephesus have come out of this Gentile culture and they need to be told not to go back into the futility of that thinking, that we're thinking in a whole new way about the way we live our lives. And as I saw these images in the last couple of weeks, whether on the internet or whether on television, I couldn't help thinking that God has to say to us, He has to say, do not live with the futility of the thinking of what's going on in the culture and the media around you. We need to get out from this idea that everything's okay and that we can do whatever we like in some 60s idea of freedom where we get so open-minded our brains leaked out as Steve Taylor, who was here just a couple of months ago and spoke to us in Fitzroy, director of the Blue Light Jazz movie, used to sing in one of his songs. We get so open-minded that our brains leaked out and there's absolutely no form to our freedom whatever. Jimmy Savile, probably living in that kind of world. For now we have sex that sells everything. 
You can look at all your television or you can go into, just go into one of the, the stores that sells magazines and see how they sell magazines. I was fascinated a few years ago. Somebody was trying to put a Christian magazine out and they were trying to get a, a Christian magazine that would sell. So they had to look at how you sell magazines. So they went in and they did all their market research. And what they realized was they wanted men to read because they think women read magazines and men don't. But they wanted to have this magazine so that men would read it too. But they showed me some of the covers that they were mocking up, and there was always a gorgeous-looking girl in the front. I was going, this is not a magazine that a man's going to pick up. Oh, it is. The way to sell magazines is to put a gorgeous-looking girl on the cover. That was a Christian magazine. And then the husband sees it lying around the house because the wife's bought it because this lovely image in the front. And he sees that article. But, oh, he thinks I might read that. And we have all this convoluting ways that we get ourselves to read things. But sex sells. The futility of the thinking of a world that causes some of the stuff to go on. Watch MTV for 20 minutes and ask yourself, What is the futility of the thinking of our age? And if we remember back to our series in Colossians, was that over just over a year ago, when we looked at Brian Walsh and Sylvia Keysmat book, Colossians Remixed, what they brought out from the book of Colossians, and I think this is what is happening for Paul again here in Ephesians. If you look at those two letters, there are a lot of similarities in those letters. And what Paul was saying, or what uh, Kiesmatt and Walsh said about Colossians was that the people in those days were dominated by images. Their imaginations were taken over by what they could see. If they went to um, uh, the, um, any government building, they would have had images of Caesar as God. And if they went to this event, there would have been some God there, that they, some image or idol of a God. And that their images, their imagination was dominated by this kind of world of worshipping these gods with small g's. And what Paul was having to do as he came into that culture was he was having to change the iconography. He was having to change what their imaginations were taken up by. He had to say, don't go with the futility of the gods that you've been worshipping. Don't go with the futility of the images that have dominated your life. Don't go with the thinking that that has produced. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind with a fresh imagination, with different icons, with different images, with different stories, with a different God. That's what is happening around us here in this chapter. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Putting off the old self that was being corrupted by the images, the dominant images of the culture. And putting on a new self that was being dominated by the images of Jesus. Who he was, what he did, and how it was to follow him. And so then, in this uh, end of chapter 4, you can see that Paul goes into some of the things that will happen when we have our thinking changed. And he goes into the minutiae of our, the way we talk and the meaninglessness of our talk or the anger that might build up in us. In us and he advises us not to let the sun go down in our anger and to be kind and considerate in these kinds of details. Now what's happening here is that 
the first three chapters of Ephesians that we looked at what God does within us, he's now looking at that very thing, the things that are going on within us. How do we change those? And what's important to remember is that these things that Paul now talks about come after God moved first. This has been one of the themes of this particular book in Ephesians. We don't save ourselves. We don't move towards God. God moves to us. We used that image of Isaiah where he was in the temple, ruined, a man of unclean lips among a people of unclean lips. He's just ruined and God moves and the Zerifs fly. We're lost in the futility of our thinking. How are we going to get out of the futility of our thinking? Well, we can't do anything about it. God moves first and comes to earth as we were thinking about in a couple of months' time and the baby Jesus and grows up to die on a cross and to be raised to life so that we might know the love of God and that we might change our lives. As we came to um, what Eugene Peterson says about this part of the book is this. The Christian life does not start with the moral behavior that is laid out here in chapter 4. We don't become good in order to get God. But having been brought into the operations of God, moral behavior provides forms for the maturing in the resurrection life. This bit's really interesting. I think this is a great image and description. Moral acts are forms in the sense that a pottery vase gives form to a bouquet of flowers. In the sense that a bucket provides a container for getting water from a well to the kitchen. In the sense that a bugle gives form to the compressed column of air so that the last post can be played. Moral acts are art forms for arranging and giving expression to resurrection. What Eugene Peterson is saying about these verses at the end of this section of chapter 4 is this. That we don't do these things to get to God. They are not the thing in themselves. But they are like a vase that you put the flowers of your life in. So it's, the vase is just a decoration. The things that we do are just a decoration of the reality of God at work within us, which is the essence of the deal. If I look to our musical instruments today, it's not this loud and guitar that is the worship. This loud and guitar gives us a form or a place that we can bring the reality of worship. The sound is not the loud and guitar. The sound is what comes from it. These moral acts are not our spiritual life. Jesus is our spiritual life. And the moral acts are things that Jesus uses as art forms to make us into what we can be. Interestingly, this week I've been um, reading Tim Keller's new book, Center Church. I've been waiting for ages for him to write a book about Redeemer in New York City. And so, so Center Church, I thought that's it. And the first chapter he's saying, this is not about Redeemer. Because we can't transfer Redeemer to Fitzroy. He doesn't say that exactly, but that's the essence of what he's trying to say. But as, as I've been reading Center Church, he comes to this moment where he describes the gospel as I've just tried to describe where we've looked at moral acts and what our faith really is. And we've looked at that moral acts don't lead us to Jesus, but Jesus leads us to moral acts. And what he says is this, and I want us to listen to this really good. I want the five to listen to this, but I want all of us to listen to this. Because this, to me, was a real challenge as I read it this week. Every one of us in this church right now, I've said earlier that we'll come here wherever we're stumbling or tumbling after Jesus. And let's face it, some have been on that journey for so long, and we do think, Let's be quite honest, we're doing really quite well at it, you know. We're, we're not doing too badly, some of us think. Here is what um, 
Uh, Tim Keller writes uh, in a book about church. He's getting to the church, but I hope. But this is what he talks about in the gospel. He's quoting somebody called Richard F. Lovelace. But this is what it says. Listen to this really well. Only a fraction of the present body of professing Christians are solidly appropriating the justifying work of Christ in their lives. Let me stop at that sentence. Only a fraction of the present body of professing believers. Only a fraction. Are living the justifying work of Christ in their lives. Let me go on. Many have a theoretical commitment to this doctrine. We would preach it if we had the chance. We would fight for our preacher to preach it if we had the chance. We have a theoretical commitment to it. But... In their day-to-day existence, they rely on their sanctification for their justification. In other words, he says, they rely on the things that they do, the doctrines that they have, the prayers that they pray, the good works that they do for their justification. That's what they do. Drawing their assurance of acceptance with God from their sincerity their past experience of conversion. Oh, I can name the date. Their recent religious performances. I'm doing very well. Or the relative infrequency of their conscious willful disobedience. Few know enough to start each day with the thoroughgoing stand upon Luther's platform. Here's what Luther's platform was. Here is the flowers in the vase. This is it in its nutshell. You are accepted. That's it. Not by what you do. Not by the doctrines you have. Not by the religious performance that you've got. Not by the position that you might have in a church. Those things do not bring you closer to God. The thing that brings us closer to God is that God moved first. You are accepted. From there, justification From there, you can look outward in faith and claiming the holy alien righteousness of Christ, the holy alien righteousness of Christ. It seems a crazy notion as the grounds for acceptance, relaxing in that quality of trust which will produce increasing sanctification as faith is active in love and gratitude. It's very simple. We've heard it so often. It's not what we do that brings us to God It's God's acceptance that changes what we do. But Lovelace suggests that I as a preacher should ask myself and the body of professing believers, is that our day-to-day reality? Keller goes on. Here's the differences. If Jesus and the gospel rather than religious works of ourselves works, Uh, The religious part says we are not doing these things. No, sorry, let me get this right. We are not doing these things to save ourselves. We are obeying out of gratitude for an accomplished salvation. We are obeying God not to get to God, but out of gratitude for an accomplished salvation. The religious person says, I obey, therefore I'm accepted. The gospel of Jesus Christ, as Paul lays it out here, is I'm accepted Therefore, I obey. The religious, our own morals getting us to God says, our motivation is based on fear and insecurity. Whereas when we're accepted in Jesus, motivation is based 
ungrateful joy. When it's our own works that we're depending on, our identity and self-worth comes from how hard we work, how well our doctrines are sorted, and how morally superior I am. But when we come to this gospel where God moves first, identity and self-worth are centered on this table. Who it is about. What he has done. The grace that he invites us into. And so we're back to the band Mumford and Sons. It's not the long walk home that changes this heart. It's the welcome I receive at the restart. This table is the fulcrum. This table changes the images that dominate the futility of our thinking. As we're dominated by Times Square all lit up, as we're dominated by Madonna in whatever state of undress, doing whatever Madonna wants to do, as the futility of the thinking of the world beats down upon us every day, we need our imaginations transformed to the place that we come today. This is not some act that we go through once a month in order that we can say that we were at communion. What we do in the next moments is we come to this table where the whole image of our lives changes to the God that is Jesus who welcomes us. An alien righteousness. The futility of the world doesn't understand that you can get this free. Surely I've got to work at it. Surely I've got to do this. Surely there's no way I can get to God just because he loves me. It's a crazy nonsense of an idea and a thinking if we're dominated by the images of our culture. But today we come to this radical, revolutionary, upside down and inside out idea that we are welcomed as we are. We're accepted as we are because someone was broken for us. We come to Jesus who welcomes us and then we're astounded that the Jesus who welcomes us, the Jesus who was King of Kings and Lord of Lords gave up heaven so that he would come down and give himself for us. We see the Jesus, another icon. We see the Jesus, a different story. We see the Jesus that gives us another imagination and then, then as we get into the heart of who he is, We see how we should live our lives as a result. We don't live our lives to get to this table. It's getting to this table that transforms the lives we are going to live. For our five communicants, this is what they're coming to. For those of us who've been here so often, have we forgotten? Have we missed it? Is it too familiar? Can we have this table to turn upside down the futility of the thinking of the world so that we can pull Satan's kingdom down, so that we can enthrone Jesus in our lives, in our fellowship, in the community around about? Don't be like the Gentiles in the futility of their thinking. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind as you come to this table accepted, accepted as you are by the body 
and the blood of Christ, to be transformed by it so that we would serve our neighbor, and yes, our enemies. Because this table changes everything. Let's pray together. Lord, everywhere we go in our culture, there are advertisements and billboards, there's music, there's commercials, there's people ringing us up, wanting us to sign up for something. There is a culture that is futile in its thinking about me getting what I want so that I can be better than others or more superior to others because of what I have or where I live. And Lord, if we're honest, some of that thinking has crept its way into church. Oh, it might not be the things that we own or our BT address, but it might be, I'll go there to get something, a name in society or a name in the church. I'll attend that event to be seen as superior to others. I'll get my doctrines right so that I can say that I'm better than others or I at least can judge myself on the basis of others and think I'm doing all right. Lord, we pray that today you would meet with us here in Fitzroy at this table. And that we would have this sacrament that we are about to share in transform us. Helping us to put off the old self and to put on this new way of thinking. That we are loved as we are because of what Christ has done for us. And that when we come accepted we can begin to relax in who we are in Christ and start to reach out to others. Lord, we pray that as we come soon to take this bread and this wine, that you would give us an image of this story that we are baptized into, this new identity that we have as fellow followers of Jesus together. And that this act of sacrament would be embedded in our hearts and our souls and our minds. And therefore, from this acceptance, we would be energized, fed, fueled, intoxicated, to live a life in our culture that shines a light in the darkness. As the lights go out all around us, we pray that the light that would still be shining is the light of Christ who we believe in and in whom we serve. Lord, we pray that as we live this life, we would watch the kingdom of Satan pulled down around us 
that we would enthrone you to lordship in our lives and that that would affect the places we live and work and play. In Christ's name, amen.